1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The path to Omaha is littered with roadkill, as the unforgiving nature of the NCAA tournament sees top seeds bounced with regularity. The Gators were pushed to the brink in their regional at Condren Ballpark, but thanks to some timely homers and clutch pitching, they lived to fight another weekend and will now welcome a familiar foe in Super Regionals. On today's show, we'll bring in the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and FloridaGators.com senior writer, Chris Harry, to discuss baseball's narrow escape, matching up against South Carolina with a College World Series bid on the line, a hero's return for the national champion golf squad, the surprising resignation of men's tennis coach Brian Shelton, and all-time sports shockers in the PAT. Then one of the stars of golf's magical run joins the show as senior Ricky Castillo details the team's remarkable journey to a title and the conclusion of his own time in Gainesville. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet healthcare destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Our roundtable is a a bit more square today with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, joining us. And guys, it may be June, but there's still a lot to discuss, and that means... It's usually a good sign if we're still talking about things in June, and it obviously starts with baseball, and Sean, there were definitely a lot of moments over the weekend where it did not look like it was going to be a good story to be talking about today, but ultimately with their backs against the wall, we saw some pretty impressive resiliency from Kevin O'Sullivan's team, and of all places, some of the arms that we questioned throughout the year that maybe didn't step up when they needed to, the pitching was there.
0: Yeah, I, it, it's certainly been a great week to be a Gator, that's for sure. And we'll we'll, we'll expand more on that here shortly with Chris and, and, and what happened out in Arizona ultimately. Um, but, you know, really there was just one moment, um, the loss on Saturday in the driver's seat game to Texas Tech. It, it's one of those things where it, in the world of overreaction, it makes you overreact. The drive home on Saturday night is not pleasant. The drive in on Sunday morning, knowing that, the Gators have to win three games to get out of their own regional and and hold uh, hold their footing as the number two overall seed. It's interesting in the sense that something that has been so good for Florida all year long, which is their offense, was the thing that probably gave us the most um, head-scratching, you know, in days one and two of the regional. You beat Florida A&M, but you re- your offense really didn't produce all that well. The loss to uh, Texas Tech on Saturday in the driver's seat game kind of is in the lap of the offense. And and it's specific things about the offense. Like, for example, 7, 8, and 9 in the, in the order um, after Saturday's game. And I'm going to be off by just a little bit, but you'll get the idea. 7 for 82 in their last 82 at-bats. Something along those lines. Um, Rivera and Ryapel, other than Rivera's two-run home run that proved to be the difference against Florida A&M, those two guys, uh, you're, you're clear leaders on and off the field in a lot of respects, uh, just hadn't been getting it done. Ryapel uh, at that point was uh, 0 for 10, I guess, in the regional. Still looking for that first hit. Cade Curlin was kind of scuffling a little bit too. So the pitching, though, showed what we would kind of witnessed over the last four or five weeks of the regular season. That, yes, early in the year, there was a bump in the road for the starting rotation. Earlier in the year, um, there was a lot of question marks about what this bullpen could or could not do. But the one consistent thing throughout the entire regional championship was the way this team pitched, uh, and both both on the front side and the back side. The starting pitching was really good from, as you might expect, Cagaleon, Waldrop. He was certainly really special. Uh, Brandon Spro too. And then the depth of your starting rotation with a freshman by the name of Kate Fisher um, who had shown flashes in the bullpen throughout the season, a guy that earlier in the year, Kevin O'Sullivan, said this is a star in the making. And his high school resume would back that up. But yet you really didn't know. And all he does is go out in a season-on-the-line game and give you a career-best innings-pitched, career-most pitches thrown – and frankly dominated. And then, of course, Ryan Slater may not have had his best stuff on Monday, but it was enough, and it was long enough to get back to that bullpen that saw Philip Abner and Ryan Neely uh, and a few others combined to to really lock things down. And then, sure enough, as this team had that, that hill to climb, I mean, I, I kept thinking about it going, in, going to the ballpark on Sunday, 27 innings and maybe more in front of you. And it is a monster hill to climb out of that, you know, loss in the driver's seat game. You just felt like if they could take this inning by inning, they could handle this. It's a team that, you know, nearly had well, I guess they had right around nineteen or twenty comeback wins on the season. Uh in the SEC tournament, an extra inning win, thanks to BT Ryapel. Um, that I don't want to say they didn't have a conscience. <laughs> or or there was no um, realization of what's supposed to happen when they're behind or they get their backs to the wall. This team just, it has a resiliency to it. It speaks to the character of that clubhouse. It speaks to the leadership um, and, and just a really resilient bunch. And so when they kind of got the offense going seven, eight, nine in the lineup, all of a sudden turned things around on Sunday. Some of that was some maneuvering by bringing Colby Holter back into the situation. Tyler Shell not having a great finish to the regional and then sure enough, Josh Rivera and BT Ryupel, um rose to the occasion, mostly on Monday in the championship game. Riopelle ends up having four RBIs, two home runs. Josh Rivera has three hits in an RBI. So those guys combined for five runs batted in and would prove to be a shutout. So funny sport, isn't it? And, uh, yeah. and hard to sometimes be a Gators fan or a college fan um, because of volatility that sometimes is involved with young men and women uh, at this age. Uh, But this is the Gators team that wins the regional, does it the hard way, and, you know, positions themselves to host. Again, this weekend is the number two overall seat. That's a very long answer to your question, Adam, but there was a lot to consume from basically it was a marathon weekend. Seven games played and all in the regional, uh, and the Gators had to play the maximum number to get it done.
2: They won three games in 27 hours, right? Yeah. You know, remarkable, and it, it's so it's so hard to win this in the postseason in college baseball because you know, you're so you're so hamstrung with your with what you can do with your
0: pitcher. So But when you look at the fact that Slater gives you five innings and throws fifty-six pitches on the day where no one's supposed to have any pitching left, it then sets up Abner and Neely, who each throw two innings in relief. So the three guys combined for the nine innings there. Uh, in that in that run, just in the championship game on Monday. Uh, they they combined to strike out six, which is actually well below the 10.8 Ks per nine that will be a new program record for this team. Hmm. So, But then if you go back a little bit further in the um, season on the line part two, because there was three of those, you have Cade Fisher throw seven innings, six strikeouts, no walks. Brandon Neely, two more innings, by the way, and he strikes out two, walks none, allows two hits. And then if you go to the UConn game, who was a top 10 team earlier this year, by the way, Hurston Waldrop might have had his best outing of the year. 12 strikeouts, two walks, 101 pitches thrown to go seven, and that put them in a position up six runs to then allow Nick Ficarota, who's a bit of a question mark at times, to come in and with some cushion pitch two innings and leave Abner and Neely available for you for those two remaining games against Texas Tech. All those things have to fall into place. Uh, and then there's Jack Caglione, who ended up being the MVP of the regional, A, because of his work on the mound, but then also uh, his, his doings with the bat again, and now is again number one in the NCAA with 31 home runs on the season, which is second all the time by any SEC player. Yeah, Caglione is one RBI now shy of tying the single-season Florida record that Preston Tucker has held at 85 runs batted in on the season and has another weekend to go past that.
1: I like his chances. Yeah. (laughs) All of those numbers considered, I think what it ultimately bakes is a story of how difficult it is to win in the postseason. And Florida is back in the super regionals for the first time since 2018, which is crazy. We're not even talking about going to Omaha. This is just getting to supers. And if it seems like that should be easier to do, nearly half of the national seeds did not make it out of this weekend, including the other two SEC heavyweights, or two of them, in Vanderbilt and Arkansas. So that's two of your top six that are gone. So it's really hard to do because there is so much parity. It's not like in the softball tournament where you see pretty much chalk because it's all about one pitcher that you can ride. It's Baseball, this is a very, very weird tournament. It's probably a lot more similar to to the NCAA basketball tournament than people realize. Well, it, it at least at the regional stage, it all hinges
0: on that. Again, I'll use the term driver's seat game. So mm-hmm. basically, you have four teams in each regional, Adam, as you know, and then the winners of the two games on day one meet up on Saturday. And then the winner in that driver's seat game is, a, is vaulted into the regional final and has to be beaten twice. The statistics say this. In the last 24 years, the team that wins those first two games and vaults into the regional final ends up winning that regional 81% of the time. So the Gators had to defy that statistic, which is now 24 years old, in order to do so. Um, And because then you have to fight your way out uphill, much like Chris said, uh, you have to win three times in 27 hours. Most teams, Adam, don't have the pitching in order to do that Mm -hmm. everybody at this stage of the game has very good arms how many though is perhaps the difference and that's what sets this tournament uh, apart from like you said softballs uh, postseason run SEC teams are more stocked when it comes to that and so Mm -hmm. it's no surprise to me that even though Arkansas and Vanderbilt are not in let's not forget that Alabama is. And so is South Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky and LSU. It is the most dominant conference in college baseball. And some of that has to do with this depth. And then sure enough, the other, the new wrinkle is now you go to these super regional series and it's right back to where you were in the regular season. It's a best of three. And sure enough, you've got South Carolina coming your way this weekend, a team that swept the Gators in, um, in Columbia earlier this year, but, There's so little, Adam, that I can almost take away from their first meeting. Brandon Neely was suspended for part of that situation, so he was not involved. Um, Carolina has been beat up at times, but now they're back almost to full health or as healthy as as Mark Kingston can get the Gamecocks at this point. And you change the venue. South Carolina is very, very good in their ballpark and use a couple of explosive moments to go ahead and sweep that series. Now you get them at a ballpark here where you've won 30-plus games the Gators love playing at Condren Ballpark. And just based on what I saw from the crowds at the at the regional round, um, uh, it'll be shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder, uh, just on the edge of campus here in Gainesville come this weekend starting at 6 o'clock on Friday night. Should be It should be spectacular. Um, and obviously the win of
1: this series certainly has earned the right to go to Omaha to be in the Final Eight. It's going to be rowdy. It's going to be hot. Um, that's just... That comes with the territory in June, and I know that uh, most people can't wait for that combination because it's a good sign of Florida's still playing in those conditions. In a, a similarly celebratory manner, but probably a little less rowdy by the nature of the sport, I want to talk a little more about, about men's golf, Chris. And we talked last week, I mean, it's late, late breaking. Uh, we were recording it at after midnight when that happened. Um, but the team came back, they got the, the heroes welcome is all the pictures of JC Deacon walking off the plane, holding the trophy. Um, I'm curious just for some additional perspective from, from people you've had a chance to talk to since the team got back and, and really let everything sink in.
2: We did have a late night, uh, last week. And I'm not sure what we, I don't even remember what, what we did talk because it was, it was such a, it's such a long day. Um, And that's funny. We're talking about 27 or winning three games in 27 hours that the Gators had to play a lot of golf in a matter of two days in that, in that match play uh, tournament. We're talking about 36 rounds in the case of Ricky Castillo. uh, He had to play 30, uh, 39 holes himself, uh, including those three holes of Southern sudden death. But ultimately what happened was the 46th all time uh, national championship in Florida history. And I got to say, um, Let's give a, let's give a little shout out to Jeremy Foley. JC Deacon became the 10th coach that Jeremy Foley hired to win a national championship. He was here 25 years. And I, uh, I don't, I doubt that there's any kind of statistic out there or any kind of charts out there that track ADs and national champions uh, or hires or what have you. But, um, JC Deacon was hired by Jeremy in 2014 when Buddy Alexander stepped down after 27 years. Buddy Alexander, a Hall of Famer in his own right, with uh, two national championships on his watch, JC Deacon now has one. There was a nice um, homecoming welcome from the Gator uh, Booster Golf Golf or the Gator Golf Boosters were there at uh, Bostick Golf Club to to meet them. You know, it's kind of the perfunctory the hugs, and thank you for being there all these years. And these guys, these people, remember, it's been a long time since that last one. The last SEC was, uh, was <clears throat> excuse me, in 2011. And the last, um, it was JC's first F- SC obviously in the National, Ch- National Championship for this program, was in 2001. One of the people there to greet them was Nick Gillum, who was the last NCAA individual champion and was also on that 2001 team. He's a member of that of that booster club. And it was kind of cool to see he and Fred Biondi, the first player since then for the Gators to win both an individual and a national championship. So just the, what I was struck with, the, JC, I think was overwhelmed with the whole emotion of the whole thing. He's just a really humble guy to see that, you know, the adoration that showered on him. And it's just like I said, the humility, the humility and class with which he He handled the whole thing. Uh, Gave a lot of credit to Dudley Hart, his assistant coach, who was on the 19 – he was here a three-time All-American from 87 to 90, was on a team in 1990, his senior, that finished second in the NSA, two strokes off the national championship to Arizona State, which had a fellow by the name of Phil Mickelson on that team. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Dudley Hart became – he was a volunteer assistant for five years, Became a full-time assistant two years ago, about the same time his son was ready to compete on this team, Ryan. And they were able to share the national championship together. Ryan didn't play during the NCAA tournament, but he was out there in Arizona with his father. Um, Just to see this team kind of put it all together when it really mattered, late in the process because, you know, you're talking about Fred Biondi, you're talking about Ricky Castiglia, John DuBose, um, all in there last year, to be able to win it. And the way they win it, I think uh, it was kind of cool what um, what J.C. did say at that at that championship in that it's just the way it all kind of fell together in the SEC to win their first SEC. You had to have Matt Kress, who's a walk-on, shoot 67 and 69 in this, in the last two rounds wow. to get them into um, match play. And then he goes 3-0 and in, in match play and just destroys his Vanderbilt opponent to kind of help lay, set the table, uh, Vanderbilt was number one in the country at the time as a team. Uh, Dubois uh, goes two and one in match play at the SEC, three and zero in match play in uh, in, in Arizona. Usian Lin uh, had a tough match against Florida State in the semifinals, really didn't play well at all, and then absolutely massacred his guy, uh, his Georgia Tech opponent in the final. So they just got contributions from everybody at different times. And it was just kind of how it all fell together for this team. And of course, Fred Biondi and Ricky Castillo, um, the studs on this team, great recruits who really stepped up their game, uh, late in their career and were able to, uh, push this, push this program over the top and, you know, in their last hurrah and it was really kind of cool to see them. really kind of cool to see them celebrate. And they were really appreciative to the, uh, Following that, the Gator Nation kind of showered on them um, because I think you could tell a lot of people were tracking this thing um, on on social media, and it was out there on television. I was a lot—I watched a lot of golf, uh, mm-hmm. college golf, more than I'd ever watched before um, over over the course of, the, of those three days. So, really, 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 really cool uh, achievement, and they're kind of basking in it now. Probably kind of. Um, winding down from it a little bit
0: i'm glad i'm glad you admitted it chris because i watched more college golf last week than i had in my <laughs> entire <ever>. life yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm
2: telling you yeah. um, it,
0: but it was it was good theater right sean it, it was it was thrilling i mean the putt that rims out for georgia tech just cracked the door open enough i, I i've got to say my my biggest takeaway non-gator specific would be this i i think in a lot of ways that format the men's golf and I'm sure the women play the same format has to be the hardest national championship to win. And I, and I, and I'm not sure it's even close. That is a grind like no other in college sports, maybe even the pros, um, you know, obviously a seven game series, uh, NBA hockey, whatever, would would certainly hold up its own in an argument, but the amount of golf that has to be played, the different formats, um, and to do so, and look, I, I'm going to say this and, and I'm going to feel really bad if there's some great reason, but everybody carries their bag, number one, except for one kid from Georgia Tech who walks with a cart, a hand cart. But anyway, I'll, I, I just want to <laughs> get on that soapbox. But anyway, I mean, I just, I, that was my takeaway was that this has to be the hardest national championship to win in college sports, as far as the physical and mental grind that it has become.
2: And let me just throw in there, it, it- it's hundred degrees out there. He's guys yes. are walking around. Was it that, that and, hot? And, and well, yeah, it was not. It, it was it's yeah. Arizona, it was, oh driving. yeah, but yeah, but it, yeah, but it's that dry Arizona. Oh yo, okay, it's in the yeah, dry it's, Arizona. It's still uh,
1: super hot. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, J C Deacon said, you know, he walked. He had thirty five thousand steps on the championship day.
1: Wow. And
2: and and he and he says he wasn't walking nearly as much as, as as some of his players were, and he certainly wasn't carrying a bag. So um, uh, it's funny, Sean. You mentioned that putt that rimmed out for Georgia Tech, and I asked uh, I asked J.C. about this, um, and we're going to talk about Brian Shelton. And, man, I asked him about this too because he he's involved in that individual sport that plays team, right? So Florida that that match is one. Florida's winning one nothing. Georgia Tech. That all that guy has to do is make that putt, and it's one to one, and the whole mental gymnastics becomes different across the course with these two teams but he misses it and Matt Crest not only gets wins that hole he wins the next hole to take his match into sudden death right so now he he wasn't playing well now all of a sudden his match is in Sunday that gives the rest of his guys a little chance to settle down and that's that he, he ended up not winning his match he's the only one who he lost a point but it, it it allowed uh Fred Bianchi to tie his match it allowed, it allowed Dubois to change his, to tie his match Castillo got back in his match and tied his match now all of a sudden pressure was off those guys and and that counts man and and you ask you ask uh, uh like JC with that makes a difference mentally to to teammates just like in team tennis when you think something's going differently on another on another court and all of a sudden that all changes it has a trickle down effect that's not usually felt in these in these sports, which you would consider individual sports normally that 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 become team sports. So mm-hmm. uh, you know tremendous stuff, and you talk about how hard it was. my my wife you know was watching this stuff. she's a big gator fan, of course, and she was saying, I don't think anyone realizes how hard this is. Just watching it on TV looks hard looks you, you you can tell how hard it is. so you can imagine how really hard it is out in 100 degree weather, carrying your own bag playing 54 holes or or Ricky Castillo's 57 holes in in 2 days. Um great stuff. Congratulations to those guys.
1: And if you're if you're new to Gator Golf and you want to learn more about the guys that are that we're talking about, uh episode 353 we talked to JC Deacon, learned his story, and then episode 355, uh we did a deep dive with Fred Bianchi, which is very interesting His story coming from uh South America where there're not a lot of golfers and he's now going pro and trying to carry the banner. Um, And if you stay tuned to this episode, you're going to hear from Ricky Castillo. I had a chance to talk to him at length about that grind of a process down the stretch, which I I think everyone will find really interesting. So encourage you to stay tuned for that. Uh, You you gave it away there, Chris, but the next place we were going to go and and wrap up our Gator News today uh, is obviously bittersweet. And it's a story that in a lot of ways reminds me of the J.C. Deacon story where he was brought in to take the the long game approach to elevating a Gator team to a national championship level. That's the same thing Brian Shelton did almost over the same period of time, about 10 years ago, uh, leading them to a national championship and getting to that, that precipice. But the difference with him was that his son is the one that helped him do it. And that son is now a big reason why he is no longer going to be Florida's coach.
2: There, there is another, I think, significant difference in what uh, Brian Shelton was able to accomplish in that uh, when he was hired. Remember, he was a women's coach at Georgia right. Tech, and he was hired to become the men's coach here at a program that had never won a national championship. Uh, J.C. Deacon came to a program that had some pedigree with four national True. championships already, already, um, you know, in that clubhouse over there. Brian Shelton built his from scratch. It's funny, I. I'll, I'll tell you this story to tell you to tell you Brian Brian Shelton. I remember talking, listening to him talk about how he just didn't like the culture of his program when he walked into it. Just the 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 air and some of the elements of entitlement. Um, imagine that uh, a tennis player is entitled. Uh, <laughs> the element of entitlement for a program that really hadn't done a whole lot. Okay, um, J.C. Deacon told me the story when he first got here. One of his fir- one of the first matches they had. They drive down to Golden or not Golden, Cal, to Black Diamond Ranch, one you know one of the five best courses in, in in the state of Florida, and they just roll in there. They go out there, they hit balls, they play, and they after they're done, they stick their bags in the in the car and their van, and they're waiting for him to drive them back. And he goes, "What the hell are you doing? Have you gone in there to thank these people for you just played their golf course?" And it just drove him crazy. Okay, again, a sense of entitlement. So they had to change the culture instantly, and that took some time. And you got to, you have to recruit people to your culture. And sometimes that culture doesn't fit some really good players. Um, it just takes some time, but I tell you what, Brian Shelton flipped the culture of university of Florida tennis. And it went next level for sure. When Ben Shelton arrived, Ben Shelton was uh, obviously a marquee recruit. Emma uh, was, uh, his, his older sister was playing at South Carolina when Ben got here and if there's a box that Brian Shelton didn't check during his time here, um, I don't I don't know what it is because mm-hmm. he won a, he won three SECs, I believe. Uh he won the program's first national championship in 2021. His son was a true freshman who scored the, the uh national championship clinching point on his court. So he got to experience that with his son. And a year later, his son won the individual uh, uh, national championship, became the fourth player in Florida history to do that. So what is left for him? What's left for him is to go coach his son on the ATP tour. His son, I believe, a year when he turned pro, was 546th in the world. Now he's 35th in the world. Wow. So he has a future in this game. Uh, Brian Shelton now will be sitting uh, courtside. Uh, helping his son. Um, I don't know if, if if my daughter was great in something. I don't know if she'd want me hovering over her, telling her what to do and everything. But obviously, Brian Shelton has been uh, doing this for a long time with Ben. They have a fabulous relationship, uh, both father, son, and coach and pupil. And Ben Shelton is 20 years old. Right? And I remember he graduated from high school a year early. So the year he did clinch a national champ for the Gators, he really should have been a senior in high school. So his whole life has been uh truly accelerated. Hell, he's already been Mr. Two Bits for a Florida football game. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so, so so how many bo- how many more boxes can the guy check? Yeah. So um congratulations to Brian Shelton. Good luck and uh they obviously um the search committee there um Scott Strickland has um has some big shoes to fill and you know we'll be talking about that who Brian Shelton's uh, replacement will be
1: soon enough. Yeah, congratulations to Brian Shelton on all he accomplished here. And I know Gator Nation is rooting for him and Ben uh, as they go forward together. I want to turn our attention out to the PAT. And we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, shortly after this uh, this earth-shattering news from the world of golf, which we've spent a lot of time talking about today. And that's the announcement that the PGA Tour and the Live Golf Tour are uniting and these warring factions are becoming one. There are myriad uh, conflicts, issues, there's all sorts of stuff around that to unpack that we're not doing on this podcast, but surely there's a lot of other ones that will. But what I wanted to use this for was the inspiration for the PAT, which got me thinking about shocking deals, moves, events in sports, just announcements that came out of nowhere and and shocked people and, and left them scratching their heads this may be one of the biggest whoppers of all time when it comes to head scratchers, but there's no shortage of them throughout all of our sports watching lives. Note yours of which are longer than mine.
0: Uh, Fair. And I think that comment has to be as important as any other you just made, Adam, because the lens of history is such that different eras see whoppers in different ways, if you will. Mm -hmm. And in the moment, it seems massive, right? And, but and I've been sitting here thinking just in the last couple of minutes about others that that may compare, and it may be hard in the moment to do so. But does does the NFL AFL situation rise to this occasion um, in a local sense? Something like the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to Los Angeles does that come as big of a whopper or Uh, mind blower as you, as you would maybe describe it as what we're seeing here this week in the world of golf. Um, It's the thing in the night, right? It's the, Mm -hmm. nobody saw this yesterday and here it is today. Is that what we're defining this as, or is it no one could have ever imagined that this could happen even if we had 10 weeks of conversation about it? I'm not so sure. I know. It it, probably qualifies as both. Um, You know, for me growing up in St. Louis, the football Cardinals leaving and going to Arizona for me as a teenager at the time, uh, that was seismic or I couldn't believe that was happening. I didn't like that one bit, <laughs> um, but franchises moving is, is more of a regular thing than something such as this that has geopolitical yeah. ramifications as well. Um, so in that sense, it may be in a very now Small conversation or on a short list of biggest sports stories that jar a fan base uh, and and its participants too, and its sponsors and its leadership, and all those things uh, as well. We may look, frankly, and I'm trying to be in the moment too, we may look at college athletes being compensated as something as super big as this when we get clear of it, Mm because we're still in the throes of it, frankly. So those are just my in the moment, you know, off the top of my
2: head thoughts. I Man, I think of the, I mean, the death of the Southwest Conference. I think about just some things that you just grew up with that all of a sudden were, were gone. I mean, I, as a guy who, to speak to, to what Sean was saying, as a person who grew up going to Washington Senators games, they left. Indian, like the Baltimore Colts left Indianapolis in the middle of the night with the moving vans and everything, but we yeah. knew they were leaving. I went to the last Washington Senators game. And in a forfeit, when the fans started pouring on the on the field in the in the in the ninth inning against the New York Yankees, Horace Clark was at bat, by the way, Sean, um, and uh, and tore the field apart. And they ended up losing losing the game nine nothing. No NFL, Excuse me. No baseball team relocated until Montreal Expos. Excuse me. Montreal Expos became the Washington Nationals uh, years years later. Um, I'll give you one that's kind of. I don't know if it falls into this, but. The USFL had some players. It was Donald Trump who decided we're going to sue, we're going to try to play in in the fall. And it was an antitrust suit and the NFL, and they won in court and they won $1, which was troubled because it was a class action suit. And he won three bucks and all those great players all of a sudden were free agents. And I think they ended up having an allocation draft or something like that. But I think that was a that was kind of weird because you know all of a sudden you had a player players like Herschel Walker and and Reggie White and Gary Clark and some you know some pretty good uh, football players all of a sudden came raining down into the National Football League after being you know fringe players in a spring league when they tried to uh, uh, Calvin Bryant was a guy who was a great player for the Philadelphia Stars that that, that I remember um, but. To me, those those are weird business like decisions that affected fans and sports. And um, I, I, I have to say, when 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 I did see this thing pop up on my notification, uh, <laughs> this this golf thing came out came out of nowhere to me. And if you see some of the reactions from some of the players, I guess one of his comments to a reporter that called him is "You have to be effing kidding me." Yeah, who saw this coming? Um. Who saw this topic of, of, of a pat coming not me
1: so yeah it's a very it's a very uh, broad all-encompassing topic the business side of sports that's becoming more and more I think evident and uh, apparent to the casual fan every day uh, when things like this happen and you get a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain spoiler alert what's behind the curtain is money it's almost always <laughs> money <laughs> don't ever forget that Adam don't, don't ever ever forget. Yes. Ever forget. This is the entertainment business. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Stay locked into FloridaGators.com. Follow these guys online and their social channels as well. And uh, hopefully next week we'll talk about Omaha. Have a good one, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Go Gators. See you, Adam. Take care. Every four-year college athlete dreams of a storybook finish, winning a national title in your senior year and riding off into the sunset, but few get to live it. Count Ricky Castillo is one of the lucky ones. As the California native got to hoist the trophy along with his teammates in Arizona, an accomplishment that is just starting
3: to sink in. Uh, well, the first the first few days were is still kind of in shock. You know, uh, I even talked to Fred and John, both my roommates, and still talk to them like I can't believe he won. I can't believe he won. And now that it's sunk in, it's it's pretty special that you know we were able to you know, do something like that and win a national championship. I mean, I mean, the last national championship we won in men's golf was uh, in 2001, 22 years ago. So it shows you how difficult it is and, you know, being able to win for, for ourselves, but also win for Gator nation was, was pretty awesome.
1: In terms of the, the postseason journey that, that, that you guys went on, it, it was, it was interesting, right? Cause you, you win the SEC championship but then you have to wait three weeks. So you're you're red hot and then you have to sit around for a bit. And regionals, when they got started, it, it was not a cakewalk for you guys. So I'm curious, how much do you think that long layoff maybe slowed your momentum and, and forced you to try and find it again as you battled through regionals?
3: Yeah, I think that's what's really tough about college golf is, you know, we just won SCCs We're playing all, I think, I mean, all five of us, I can say we're playing, Really, really solid, and you know we're a really, really good national championship-contending team right there. And then you know you have to take two and a half, three weeks off before you get to regionals. And I mean, I'm not saying that we were lazy or anything, but just you know when you take three three weeks off of tournament golf, you know sometimes you you don't play as well, or you don't get back into things. And I think just for us as a team, uh, we weren't putting that well uh, for the first couple of days of regionals, and I think that was. Kind of just the biggest thing. I think we played well, and uh, I think our mental game was in the right space. I don't think any of us were ever worried that we weren't going to make nationals. Uh, I know it looked like we weren't going to make nationals for a bit. But <laughs> I don't think I don't think any of us were really that worried because I knew that. You know, in the end, there are going to be teams that were under pressure that haven't been in that situation before. And I know that we've been in that situation multiple times. So I wasn't worried about it. I just knew that, you know, if we went out there and played a solid round, we would make it. And, you know, that's what we ended up doing and, you know, gave us a chance at Nationals and ended up winning the whole thing. So it's pretty cool.
1: So for those that don't know how it works, which included me until about a week ago when I learned all of this. So it's just stroke play for the team leading up to... I guess the the final four, or I guess the the elite eight, if you will. Yeah. Um, and then you transition into match play, where you're doing one on one, and really changing the whole way you're competing. So I'm just curious how challenging that is from a, a mental standpoint when you get to the end of the road to win a championship, and now the game essentially changes. It it seems pretty unique, right?
3: Yeah, I think it's pretty cool just because in stroke play, you're kind of playing the golf course. I think you're more calm. You're focused on, you know, just minimizing mistakes and stuff like that. And then when you get the match play, you know, it's one on one. So I always see, it. you know, if you make a bad score on a hole and make an, an eight on a hole and birdie the next hole, if the guy you're playing goes par par, you're all square. So it really doesn't matter it's 18 individual little matches and you're just trying to win as many as you can. So I think that's, what's cool about match play. And, you know, you get a little bit, you can get a little bit more emotional because you know, momentum plays a big factor into that just because, you know, when you're playing against another player, it's different. It's more like a tennis aspect where, you know, it's kind of like head to head instead of one person playing against a hundred different guys mm-hmm. you know, in the regular golf stroke play aspect. So I think it's pretty cool. It brings a little bit more energy. And I think that's why it's pretty cool to watch on TV just because, you know, it has that energy and, you know, you see a lot of people getting really emotional about it because, you know, they, they care about their team. They want to win for their team.
1: Does it change the way you play? Because as you said, you know, you could go eight on one hole and it doesn't carry over. So can you be more aggressive or do you just sort of try to play the same way as you would during stroke play?
3: Uh, I think in some uh, moments, you can be aggressive, you know, if a guy hit, but it's also times where you can be more conservative, you know, if you're playing, against your competitor, and you know, you're in your four up, and you only have, you know, four or five holes left, you're going to play more safe, just because you're going to force the other person, you know, make birdies and stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, it, you can use it to apply pressure, you know, if you take a more aggressive shot and pull it off than the other Person you're playing is thinking, you know, I got to do this. So there's just a lot of little things that go into match play, with you know, uh, just putting pressure, in, especially with order of play. You know, it depends on you know, your a lot of your decisions off the tee and into greens and stuff like that can depend on what the other person does.
1: So you've got five matches going on all at the same time, um, and yet you're all playing for the same overall goal. You're playing for the same team. So I'm curious. To what degree are you aware of what's happening in the other matches? Is it something that you try not to think about, but you do anyway? Do you shut it out? Is it good to know what's happening? I'm, I just think it's such a different dynamic. I'm just, I'm, I'm, curious how that works.
3: Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. For me, personally, I know there's it, it depends on the person. I know for, for me and Fred, uh, I know that we were people that, you know, as soon as I teed off, I'm... I know exactly what every single match stands at you know I'm we're allowed to go on our phones and you know check uh hmm. scores and stuff like that so you know me and Fred are checking scores all the time just to know where we're at as a team we won't do it in stroke play or anything like that but more in the match play when you know it's important to know hey the, the your teammate in front of you is one down or he's losing and you need to win your match and sometimes this like, uh, it's tough to think because sometimes you have to think that you, you have to win this hole or you have to make this putt. And I think that's what brings the emotion out of match play is when, you know, you hit a shot that you need to hit or make a putt that you need to make and you end up making it, it brings out a little bit more emotion just because, you know, you know that you need to make it and you end up doing it and it, you know, brings a little bit of fire. So I think that's what's the cool part of match play. And for me, I just like knowing just to know what i need to do in my match like in the semi-final match um uh, i i knew exactly where we were and i knew at the when i teed off on 16 i knew that i needed to figure out a way to flip my match because i knew my match is going to be the decider and it ended up being the decider so and i think that helped me you know if i didn't know as a decider maybe i would have been more aggressive and i ended up playing smarter just because the guy I was playing made a couple mistakes so i mean it just kind of depends uh what you prefer and what you think is best for you. But for me, I think that helped me just knowing that I needed to be the one to flip my match and end up doing it. So
1: Yeah, and that semifinal, ironically enough, was against Florida State. So it was a chance to not only stage a huge comeback, uh, but to beat you know, a, a big rival. Um, you, were, you were describing a second ago, but in that match, you were down two, going to 16. And the team had already lost two matches. So it was the only way to stay alive was for you to win and then you end up taking it to 21 holes getting a sudden death what was that what was that pressure like have you ever felt pressure like that before or was this kind of a, another level
3: it's it's interesting cuz uh when i was watching i was watching my uh, teammate john dubois at cc's and i've never been that nervous in my life watching <laughs> and playing it's you kind of are in a different zone you kind of forget about like you know the pressure and you kind of just focused on every shot so honestly I didn't really feel not that I didn't feel pressure but you know you kind of almost forget about all the outside and you just kind of focus on what you can control uh, right in front of you but I mean I was comfortable you know I know that my team trusted me and I knew I trusted myself and you know just needed to go out there and give myself the best chance and you know on the 21st hole I ended up hitting a good shot and had a good look, had a good read. He missed it on the low side, gave me a little extra look and ended up making it. So I think that, you know, the pressure was there, but I think just when you're kind of in the moment and you're focused on one shot at a time, I feel like, you know, not that it's disappears, but you kind of, it kind of stays more under control.
1: Hmm. So after you made that birdie on the 21st hole to win, uh, you're obviously very fired up. And, and it was funny, seeing there's a lot of that you talk about that emotion and kind of a like, let's go energy. Um, But yet it's still golf, right? So I'm, I, I'm curious, how do you balance the, the energy, the excitement with the, the decorum that you still have to keep? Because at the end of the day, it is still golf.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, I was really, really excited when I made that putt. And but I just knew like, as soon as I made that putt, uh, if you watch the video, I took my hat off and calmed down quickly and just you know, <laughs> shake my opponent's hand because, you know, it's golf and, you know, you got to respect the other player and that, and, you know, the other player, Brett Roberts is a great player, you know, he's a junior at Forest State, he's been a great player there. And, you know, respecting the other player and respecting the game, you know, that's just what, what you got to do. And obviously, you know, I was, shook hands with the coaches and the players and stuff like that and then you know I my team came over and we celebrated so it's it's tough to kind of balance that but I think I did it pretty well yeah
1: so going on to the championship match which was another nail biter um you're actually your match didn't finish was the one that did not finish so what do you remember about the moment it ended, I mean, are you, are you like about to hit a shot and just drop the club and sprint away? Like what happens when it, when it ends not where
3: you are? Well, so me, I mean, JC was walking with me and I I knew exactly what was going on. Uh, I knew I was watching through my rangefinder on the tee box. I knew Fred hit (laughs) on the green. I knew Fred on one stroke lead. And I saw that, uh, the guy who was playing Hiroshi Tai hit a great uh, bunker shot from a pug on 18 to about 15 feet but I knew that Fred had two putts from about 30 feet to for us to win and you know I'm just staying in the fairway kind of hoping that he two putts because you know I I not that I didn't want to hit the shot but you know I was already you know you already know like you're so close and I you know I trusted Fred I yeah it's it one of those things where you know he's gonna two putt but you're just hoping in the back of your head that you know he just really get does get it done and you know, as soon as he did and I saw, you know, them take their hats off, you know, me and JC got emotional just because you know, it's been a long four years. And it was I mean, everyone sees, you know, the highs and how good we were now. But I mean, obviously, there were a lot of lows and, you know, a lot of difficult struggles over the past four years. So I think that was what was the great part is, you know, after all the bad playing and stuff like that and, you know, ending up with a win. Uh, the national championship—that's what's—that's what's the best part. Is you know, you work really hard and you don't see any progress, and then once you finally see it, it just feels that much better.
1: What's well, the culmination of a long journey for you, and one that started uh, far away from Gainesville, Florida? So, can you, can you tell us about where you grew up and and the the early part of your uh, of your life?
3: Yeah, I grew up in Yorba Linda, California, so I was a Southern California kid, and you know, I started playing golf when I was five or six years old just kind of got into it with my uh with my dad and my brother just that's literally just how I you know grew up started playing just wanted to be like my older brother and my dad my older brother and my dad would uh go and play when I was still three or four years old and I would just watch them go and stuff like that and I'd see them come back and my dad had a net in the backyard that they would hit balls into and I'd always want to go and play and then once I started playing you know I just always just loved to play I was when I was a kid, I was, I'd get so excited to play that, uh, I wouldn't even ride in the golf cart. I just hit my shot and then run to the next ball. Wow. I'd get so excited. So, you know, just, that's just who I was, you know, I was never a country club kid or anything like that. You know, my parents were both, uh, public school teachers, so we couldn't afford or anything like that. We just had a course that was, you know, cheap and close and just would play there ever since I was a little kid and, you know, just got better and better. And, you know, ended up, being able to come to the University of Florida, which is, you know, pretty awesome and, you know, live my dreams playing Division One college golf and, you know, now on to the new chapter playing professional golf. So it's pretty awesome.
1: I asked Fred this when I talked to him a few weeks ago, um, but did, did you immediately pick up the game or did you love it because you were instantly good at it or did you love it, but it took a while to actually be able to play?
3: Uh, what's crazy for me, I got good at it really quickly. Uh, I was, I think I started playing when I was four or five and I think in the junior world championship when I was six years old, which is basically just like a hundred, I think it was like a hundred players from all around the world. I was six years old and I, I think I came in second or something like that. I, I, I started being pretty good from a really young age. I took it real like not every kid took it as seriously as I did, but I, you know, a lot of people thought my dad got like was like got me super serious or into it or anything like that but it was me i just i just really wanted was took it super seriously and just wanted to play golf really badly so you know i wanted to play tournament golf that's what i was always excited about so i was pretty good from a pretty young age i think in the u.s kids world championship from ages 6 to 12 i think my worst place finish was like sixth place hmm I was a pretty good junior golfer so I was one of those kids that kind of picked it up pretty early and kind of just got into it and just played a lot of tournament golf and just got really good at it.
1: When you end up coming to Florida, what was it that that JC sold you on? What was it about his vision, the opportunity that that made you pick Florida as the the place to continue your career?
3: For me, I just thought that it was the best place for me to, you know, continue my dreams as playing professional golf and, you know, giving myself the best chance to be a professional golfer and, you know, just the whole, you know, atmosphere of Florida. And, you know, it's, it's not like any other college, you know, I visited some other colleges and just people treated Gator athletes just so much different and so much better. I feel like they just, you know, we have all these trainers and, you know, this great facility and all these people trying to help us. And I think that's what really sold me is just, you know, the whole, facility but just everyone that cares about the gators i think is the biggest thing is just the whole gator community and gator nation is just so big as a whole and they're so you know loving and caring and i think that's what you know sold me the most
1: and in addition to having jc you have uh one of the most famous volunteer assistant coaches in the country in any sport uh and that's billy horschel a former gator what is it like having a resource like him available and, and how has he been helpful to you and your teammates
3: uh you know he's been super super helpful you know he comes out uh he doesn't come out that often but you know he tries to come out as much as he can you know he's got a busy schedule so we completely understand but always you know has this always tells us you know to call him to text him if we ever need anything so you know he's always there and I think just the biggest thing is just for, I think for the younger guys, he helps more with, you know, mechanics and stuff like that and, you know, little things. But, you know, for the, us older guys, I think he was really focused on the, you know, the mental aspect of it and just like the, uh, what to expect, especially, you know, going in forward into professional golf and stuff like that. And I think that's what's been a really big help is just, you know, talking through the little things and, you know, talking through the mental aspects and, you know, how to stay calm and, you know, focusing on, you know, what's important, what's important that got you there, just keep working on it and stuff like that. And I think that's what's been the biggest help for us. I'm sure
1: he's probably one of them, but other than Billy Horschel, who are some other golfers that that you look up to? And and I guess it, you know, people can play golf for a long time. So it might be the same people you watched when you were just getting into the game are still people that you follow today. Uh but just curious, some of the some of the guys you followed most closely throughout your life.
3: Obviously, I mean Tiger Woods is up there just because, you know, he care for the game and his love for the game and just wanting to be the best. I think everyone can admire that. Just, you know, there's not a lot of people that have done the things that he have, he has done. And I think that's just someone that everyone always looks up to just because his desire to be the best. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that he didn't really care about you know, this or that, he just wanted to win. And that's what made him so much better than everyone else. For me too, just like the Jordan speeds are really good examples, you know, the guys who carry themselves really good on the golf course, but are also, I think really, really good human beings off the golf course, you know, they're mm-hmm. always their hours signing autographs, you know, doing the little things. And I think that's what the the role models I think are the best for us is just guys that are good golfers, but good people as well, and are giving back to their communities.
1: I asked uh, both JC and Fred these questions, so we'll see if your answers align. I'm, I'm I'm, guessing they probably will to some degree. What is your favorite course that you've ever played? Or it could be multiple, if there's too many to choose from.
3: Mine's, mine's probably going to be different than theirs, because I've played a few different courses. They're a little bit different courses, but probably my favorite course is Pinehurst number two. Pinehurst North Carolina. I think just... For me, I've played a few tournaments there. And I think the history behind it is really cool. Just being, you know, a golf course that's been there for over, over 120 years. I think, I think it was built in like 1900 or something like that. So yeah. I think that's, what's really cool. And just the whole, what's cool about that golf course is just the whole city is kind of built around golf. You know, there's just golf courses everywhere and been my favorite golf course, the history and, you know, the design and it's just kind of been my favorite course forever.
1: Hmm. What is a course you haven't played that you most want to play?
3: Uh, Augusta National. That yeah. was the answer. Yeah, <laughs> that was. I, I think that...
1: has, has Fred played? I'm not. I know. I'm pretty sure JC had played it.
3: Yeah, That was his JC's favorite. Played it. Fred has not. Because Fred okay. probably said the same thing as me. <laughs> yeah, Fred said the
1: same thing. We should have done like the uh, like the the new like the match game. You know, see if your answers match. Yeah. Up. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd probably say Augusta. Is it the the prestige, the mystique around it? Like why you've played so many golf courses. Why is Augusta so so meaningful to golfers?
3: I just think as, you know, it's the Masters and anyone can ever say if you've had one tournament that you'd ever want to win as a professional golfer, I think everyone would say the same thing and be the Masters. So, you know, it's just the history and you know, it's the only major championship that's played at the same course every single year. So I think that's just the the beauty of it and everyone wants to be wearing the green jacket. And that's, I think that's what just makes it so prestigious. You know, you see the guys when they win on the 18th green, they, they have a lot of emotion when they win other tournaments, but you see the guys when they win the masters, it's, it's a different emotion, you know, just because you get to be up there with one of the, the greatest players of all time.
1: So you haven't played the masters yet, but you have played in the U S open, correct? Yes. So 2020, so probably the weirdest US Open of all time in 2020. Uh, what was that experience like? What did that What did that mean to you to, to have that opportunity?
3: Uh, that was a super cool experience. You know, it was kind of weird just because there was nobody, nobody there as COVID years, so there's no fans or anything like that. But I think it was super cool. The golf course was unbelievable. Wingfoot was an amazing property. Just, you know, it was a really, really difficult golf course. And you know, but I think they treated us really, really well. It's difficult just because, you know, it's COVID. So, you know, we can't be around people as much. You know, you're wearing masks. So it's more just kind of stay in your hotel room as much as possible. And then when you come to the golf course, you know, you can have a little more freedom. So, but I mean, it was really cool just playing in US Open, you know, seeing all those great guys out there playing and, you know, playing in the same event. So it was it was really awesome.
1: Were you were you starstruck by any of the players and I guess it's it's challenging cuz you probably couldn't just go up to them the way you would in non-covid times um but was it was it surreal? It
3: was crazy cuz you know it didn't feel that different even you know I I was you know I walked past Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson and it wasn't that big of a deal and I didn't really think anything was that big of a deal and, but then I was on the chipping green I think on Tuesday before the tournament and tiger walked up and then like that that was different like kind of you know there's 150 people around like 100 different golfers with their caddies and stuff like that and you know when he walks up everyone kind of just stops and mm-hmm. acts different you know just his presence was different but besides that you know I mean, it just kind of felt like a normal golf tournament, especially with no fans. It didn't really feel that much different just because, you know, there's nobody around. It's just kind of feels like a normal tournament when there's only four people in the group, like five or six people in the group, you know, maybe two people watching you. So,
1: yeah, Tiger's Tiger's different. And I saw him at Eastlake a few years ago for the tour championship and everybody was there and Phil was there and Roy was there. And then when Tiger walks by, it's just it's something it's I imagine it's like when Elvis walked by. There's just this, he has this presence and this aura about him that is just, it's so unique from everybody else out there. So I, I felt that too. So I totally yeah. know what you're talking about.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Almost everyone just kind of stops and it's like, everything's quiet and just, everyone's just kind of watching him just like not saying anything. They're just kind of all focused on him. He's just, its he's just like a different type of celebrity, you know, he's, Yeah, you got those guys that are you know really really popular and then you know he's up there like well you said the elvers press these are guys you know that were loved by billions and billions mm-hmm. of people yeah so.
1: couple final questions for you uh we've talked a lot about golf what do you enjoy doing
3: off the course most of the time honestly i don't really do a whole lot off the course it's kind of funny i, <laughs> I most of my time like even when i'm not uh playing tournament golf most of my time is you know just hanging out with buddies just playing casual rounds or stuff like that and nothing much honestly i like cooking every once in a while but you know nothing really crazy most of my time is either golf or just binge watch something on tv
1: yeah i saw ed sheeran a couple weeks ago and he talked about how during covid he was totally needed to get a hobby and he realized his hobby was writing music and performing so if that's (laughs) you know if if that's what you do that's what you do exactly yeah (laughs) Um, final question for you, you mentioned this earlier, um, but, but what timing for you to win a national championship at the, the end of the road for your college career? Uh, Fred, I believe just yesterday announced he was turning pro. So you guys are going pro at the same time, but what is, what's next? What is the journey like from here? Is the roadmap very clearly spelled out or do you sort of have to figure it out as you go?
3: Yeah, I think that's what's good about professional golf is, uh, you know, it's kind of you're your own boss and stuff like that. So I think just for right now, I'm just kind of keeping options open and just kind of going and, you know, plans can change, but, you know, I don't have anything set up really that uh, like a schedule that clearly set up for, you know, the next month or so. So I think that's the best thing is just, you know, just keeping an open mind, just kind of play as much as you can just the way everything the way everything works is that you know good golf fixes everything so it's kind of just you know just play well play as much as you can just give yourself the best chance and you know what I've noticed what I've learned is that you know golf is not like a marathon or not a a sprint it's a marathon you know it's you know there's guys out there that are on tour that are 45 that are doing you know playing golf so it's not like you know those guys got to the tour when they're 20 years old and, you know, they're only there for two years. They're there for, you know, 20 plus years. So it takes a long time. So, you know, it's something that you kind of got got to enjoy, but, you know, take your time on. Is it time to pick a caddy yet or does that come later? Uh, I am i haven't picked a caddy yet. That comes, uh, I'm not like, I, I have some options, but I haven't picked a caddy yet.
1: Do you have a caddy? Is Do you have to be on the PGA? Does like, do you have a caddy on corn ferry tour or yeah, do you, you automatically?
3: You you have caddy on the corn ferry tour. Okay,
1: listen, that's it's a good job. I think I, I saw earlier that uh, that chef was Scotty. Chef caddy's made over a million dollars already this year. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 good work if you've got the right bag.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Ricky, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on a, an incredible finish to your career. And Gear Nation will be rooting for you as you you take the next step.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales.